Today's Data Knots episode is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV, binge-worthy learning of the most in-demand IT certs. Visit itpro.tv slash data and use code DATANOTS to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. How'd that lift and shift to the cloud go? Pretty good? Workload spun up in AWS? Getting used to Azure? Management happy because IT is all cloudified? Excellent. That was day one. Now it's day two, and you've got some new problems to solve. Cost issues, security issues, operations issues. On today's Data Knots episode, we dig into your day two cloud. Packetpushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall, at Chris Wall, who refactored his cloud ass before refactoring was cool. With us today, Maish Seidel Casing. I hope I got that close. We were working on it before. I didn't think I got it quite right, Maish. But welcome to the show to talk about Day 2 Cloud. And if you would, in a sentence or two, just introduce yourself to the audience. Thank you very much, Ethan. You got it perfectly right. Thanks a lot. Excellent. My name is May Sado Casing. I am a cloud and DevOps architect currently working for a company by the name of CyberArk in Tel Aviv area. I've been a very active person in the virtualization community for a good number of years. Met Chris a couple of times in a couple of shows. I think we've also met as well, Ethan, once or twice. I can neither look, confirm to... nor deny that. No, wait, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've met you. You've been in a lot of the worlds, buddy. <laughs> I am very happy to be here on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, let's jump into the topic then. Why does the lift and shift approach to cloud result in a, well, for starters, for a, a big bill? I think the reason that lift and shift usually costs more than we hope when we make a migration to the cloud is because we are accustomed to buying resources for on-prem. And when we lift and shift something, we're just essentially moving what we have currently in our data centers today and just taking it and moving it into the cloud without any kind of optimization or any kind of refactoring of the applications. Therefore, if we would buy a server with eight cores and 128 or 256 gigabytes of RAM, just moving it as it is does not provide any cost benefit or any cost savings that we can get when we actually start using the cloud in the right and correct way. So usually when we take all these kind of applications and usually when we requisition our hardware for on-prem applications, then we usually go overboard when we that uh, above and beyond what we really want. That is yeah, why that's I think the fun part. <laughs> you yeah, buy these course. big beefy servers, but yeah. Yeah, that's true. So usually it's a lot more expensive than we really hope. And usually when we buy, we also go for CapEx and not OpEx. We have to finish the budget before the end of the year. So it usually becomes a lot more expensive because we're just moving one piece of monolith big application from one location to another without actually thinking of how we can actually save and optimize those applications. Well, yeah, you just hit on a really big thing there. When we get that budget, it's like, oh, gosh, we got money. We better spend it all. And so we buy the biggest, baddest thing we can get, whether it's a network switch or a server or a storage array for our on-premises gear. But I guess the point we're making here is that is not appropriate for cloud. You need to size correctly when you're moving to cloud or you're going to you're just going to be overspending because you're over-provisioning from what you actually need. I agree completely. Very much so, yes. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Are there tools that you can recommend to folks listening that help understand that cost breakdown? Because here's what I'm seeing a lot of. 
the top, you know, the top brass are saying we're going to move stuff into the cloud and, you know, maybe they're saying we're going to move it in temporarily and then refactor it and it never gets refactored. They just don't understand that this might be a big hit on the wallet. So how can we understand that cost breakdown a little better? So I think each of the cloud vendors themselves provide a certain number of in-house tools, which give you at a high level of what you're spending. Each and every single one of these tools, unfortunately, are incredibly complicated to understand. And it's very, very difficult to exactly find out what money you're spending on which exact resource of, for example, how much your network traffic is costing you. And can you aggregate all these metrics and all the cost on a certain project or a certain tag? These are things which, unfortunately, even after being since 2006 or however many years people have been in AWS and we're already almost to 12 or 13 years later, it is still a problem and a request where people are serving problems to understand where they're spending their money on in the cloud. That is why there's a whole huge ecosystem around these cloud vendors, which are trying to solve that exact problem. For example, there's Cloud Health, there's Cloud Checker, just two different companies which come to the top of mind, which I've had previous experience with. But it is not simple. Of course, each of these companies make their own, their dollars and dimes on how much money they save you on your bill. They'll take a small percentage of that amount of money that you actually save. But it is something which, unfortunately, the, the cloud vendors themselves do not provide you a easy, transparent tool to understand. But usually you would have to, in order to understand exactly this breakdown, go and acquire the usage or the help of a third party to help you dig down really, really deep inside your bills to understand exactly where all that money is going to. Okay, so you go to the third party. Well, so first of all, I want to back up. Do you have to have a third party, really? Or is it kind of like some licensing schemes for on-premises software have gotten so complicated you might have a licensing specialist on staff? Do you actually need to have a billing person on staff to just to understand your bill and go from there? I don't know if you need to have a billing person on staff in order to understand your bill, but there are certain cases, and I don't know if... I remember hearing once in one of the lectures at reInvent or perhaps one of the webinars online that, for example, the bill of Netflix, which is almost 100% or is 100% living on AWS today, their billing file, which they get every month, is something like three terabytes in size. So <laughs> the billing file is three terabytes. Oh, okay. Exactly. The billing file is a very, very large file because they get extreme detailed metrics on every single resource which is used and how it is used. And they, of course, have their own Hadoop cluster and metrics analytics and map reduce in order to understand exactly piece by piece what is being used. And I'm sure in this case, specifically for Netflix, there's more than one person which is doing this full time. For a person which is moving to the cloud, starting out, I don't think you will. But when you start getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you will need either a tool to help you out, understand where all the money's going or somebody to do it for you. So it does sound like you're getting a lot of granular data. So on the assumption you can understand it, however you're doing it, you've got a tool that's parsing it out, you've bought into a third party that is helping you understand that bill. Are the metrics that you're getting enough that you can actually find a path forward to know how to save money? I think it is, but unfortunately, you will have to let things roll a tiny bit for a certain certain period of time in order to understand and collect those metrics over a certain number of months or weeks or years going through because in the beginning to try and understand what you want to save money on will not be very very easy usually the actual the easiest saving is not by going over the bill 
It's by negotiating the correct purchasing or the correct requisition from Amazon. For example, if we take the example of reserved instances, we'll save you multitudes of money compared to anything you can actually save from going through the bill line by line. Because if you move to a reserved instance, then you're not, you don't have an instance that's spun up and burning cash all the time. Is that right? Um, actually, reserved instances are more of the fact that you are committing to use a certain set of resources from AWS upfront for different kinds of periods of time between one to three years. And as a result of you committing to AWS that you will use those resources over that amount of time, you get a decent amount of discount, which can go anything from 25 to 50% on the cost of a regular on-demand instance, which will save you a huge. Basically a bulk buy. You're doing a big spend up front by committing to them and they'll give you a discount on it because they know what you're going to use. Okay, I get it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because when you start, you're probably just poking around, you're getting something cheap, easy, quick. And then when you need to double down, this is going in production, whatever. What I'm trying to say is you're probably not thinking about cost when you're building. And then when it's up there, you're like, oh, crap, I need to move over to you know reserved instance as an example or, or how you're purchasing the compute and storage matters. But you may not know that on the front end because you're, you're building. You don't know what this thing's going to look like. Exactly. So therefore, do organizations that are looking to go into cloud, you know, this lift and shift that we talked about originally, does that mean, is it black and white? Do I have to rethink all of my infrastructure and my applications completely because otherwise I'm just going to get kind of bent over by cloud cost? Or is there a journey where it's kind of incremental and I start moving, I don't know, pieces of the application or consuming parts of the cloud? Is it kind of all in or can you creep in a little bit? I think you are able to make a staggered migration from all on-prem to all in cloud because not only is the actual task of moving everything from one location to the other a huge undertaking that IT departments and infrastructure teams need to undergo when they make such a migration. And therefore, moving everything in one big lump will take a very large amount of time and also a huge toll on the actual people doing the work because they have to understand how the cloud works as compared to what they had on-prem and how operations need to change in a certain kind of different way from the way they were used to and accustomed to doing it on-prem in their data center. In any event, when moving to the cloud, I think the staggered approach is the correct one to take because as a result of moving into the cloud, you learn a lot of new kind of new sorts of technology or new kind of ways to save or optimize your infrastructure. And just plopping everything from one place to the other without learning how to use the options and functionality that you have available for you from a cloud provider will eventually cost you more money. So from my perspective, I think it would be better to do a staggered approach and make a staggered plan or a migration journey from going all on-prem to all in the cloud in a sane and level way instead of doing one huge thing, get everything in until we get there, we're not going to stop. So the, the staggered approach then, it sounds like you're advocating you stagger because you're going to learn as you go. So start with a small bite-sized project, move it to cloud, and then learn what cloud is offering you and how to host that app in the cloud properly to take advantage of what the cloud is offering, get your costs right, and then begin moving other applications based on what you've learned. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I would recommend, for sure. Uh, okay. So is there, 
is there one big thing that you would usually recommend to companies to help them save cash on their cloud bill? For example, you gave you gave that example earlier of reserved instances as a way you could save some cash there. Is there another big thing or maybe a few tips that companies could walk away with? So as the first one, as I said, is reserved instances. It is the most dead drop easy, simple way to save or cut 30% on your bill in less than a week. A lot of people don't understand and are very weary of going to reserved instances. Will I actually use the compute resources that I've purchased over the year or in the next three years? The number of options available for you today within AWS of either reserved or of either different terms of either one year, no upfront, one year upfront, five years upfront is actually quite astounding. And the amount of money, of course, that you save depending on the amount of time you commit to Amazon or any other cloud provider for, for that matter, will, de- will vary depending on the amount that you're willing to commit to them. But there's also ways of what they say, for example, there are convertible RIs, reserved instances, where you can change different kinds of families that you have used or you might not use now and you might use them in the future. So there's a huge amount of flexibility which you can use. That would be the first thing. The second thing, and this, of course, is something which is not going to be suitable for every kind of application and every kind of company or organization that moves to the cloud is spot instances. So reserved instances, you commit to Amazon or your cloud vendor that you're going to use a certain amount of resources for a certain amount of time upfront. A spot instance is similar to what I would call a stock market, where you say, I'm going to pay a market price for a certain instance, which has, in this case, for example, in Amazon, they have a excess capacity of compute instances, which nobody's bought or purchased. So instead of losing money on them, they put it on a market and say, anybody can bid and say, I want to pay 20% of what the list price is. If you're lucky enough and you know what you're doing and you know how to request the correct resources and use utilize this mechanism in a good way, Instead of saving from what we were saying from reserved instances of 30% of the cost of your original from of, from the on-demand price, on spot instances, you can save 90% of the cost, which is a huge amount of savings. When you said reserved instances before, I was thinking of spot instances. Yes, that uh, that that rings a bell. But it's right. It's, it's based on that kind of that market approach where um, the value comes and goes depending on how much excess capacity is sitting out there available. But as I said before, it's not suitable for every kind of application because the biggest downside to using the spot market is you have two minutes notice that Amazon is or the cloud provider is going to take that instance away from you. So you wouldn't be putting your exchange or your Active Directory on a spot instance. Because <laughs> right. Where'd it go? <laughs> Where'd it go? It's exactly. really cheap. It's not taking up. It. Oh, it's not there. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, it has to be a stateless application, something which can recover and is highly available, highly distributed. And that if you lose one of your instances out of your whole cluster, then that's not so bad because within two minutes, you can spin up a new one and everything else will pick up the slack. It has to be an application which is suitable, available, and doesn't have any kind, usually has any kind of state available, which allows you to rely on having the instance up 24-7 from Amazon or from any other cloud provider for that matter. You know, the idea of incurring network transit costs, that, that's kind of foreign, I think, for a lot of folks when you start trying to wrap your head around pricing, you know, because 
typically you can just send network stuff over your wire. You're paying for the pipe itself, not the actual transmission. And that's the thing, right? We don't often factor in costs that are incurred for things we normally think of as, you know, quote unquote free because we typically own everything in the data center's guts. So I thought that was an interesting point. What about you, Ethan? Kind of related. Manish made the point, understand how the cloud works compared to what you've got on-premises. In other words, there's a lot packed into that statement. You know what you've got on-premises on and how to operate it and what that cost model looks like and what CapEx and OpEx looks like, etc. But when you go to cloud, it is different. In other words, that's why he's saying you have to understand how the cloud works. Thinking it's just virtualization in the sky is wrong, which is where a lot of folks start out. And so getting a deep understanding of how the cloud works is absolutely crucial because it is not the same as what you've been doing on premises all the time. Before we go back to the show, you should know about IT Pro TV. This is online on-demand training that helps you certify in a variety of programs, including Certified Ethical Hacker Version 9, AWS Certified Solutions Architect Associate, AWS Certified SysOps Administrator, and then Cisco certs like CCNA and CCNP, Microsoft certs like MCSA and MCSE, and VMware, VCP6 Data Center Virtualization, and many more. The course library has something for you, whether you're brand new to the industry and you're just trying to skill up fast, or maybe you've been around for a while and you want to stay sharp. IT Pro TV keeps the course library current, recording new content live every day, and they are hoping you will find it binge-worthy learning. You can consume the courses pretty much any way you want. You can stream either the live courses or the on-demand courses from your desktop, mobile device, Apple TV, Roku, and Fire TV. And now the big question, what about pricing? Well, premium subscriptions, which include unlimited Kaplan practice exams and virtual labs, are normally $857 per year. But when you use code DataNots, you'll only pay $600 per year. Standard subscriptions and corporate memberships are also available. So choose a plan, create an account, and learn. Visit itpro.tv slash data and use code DataNots to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. One more time, itpro.tv slash data and use code DataNots. And now back to the show. Well, now that we've talked a little bit about kind of the cost savings and the migration into cloud, let's talk about, I don't know, maybe it's a taboo subject, but it's certainly in the news a lot, security, specifically cloud security. So in the past, we've talked about AWS's shared responsibility and the security model that surrounds that on Datanauts. So we've talked about IAM, which is the identity and access management. So we're certainly no stranger to this topic, but Maish, in your experience, are customers the ones that are responsible for data breaches from Amazon, such as when we see these, you know, these S3 bucket failure awards given out on the AWS newsletter? Or is Amazon part of the security problem? Kind of where do you claim fault on that? I can understand where people would like to um, lay blame on Amazon for the fact of having security breaches. But I do think that the stance of Amazon of having their shared security model, which is very, very clear, and it's very, very well documented of what Amazon is responsible for and what you as the customer using the services are for is something which in a way allows you a huge amount of flexibility in what you can do with the platform. But in the other way, it also comes with responsibility of you understanding what you want to do with the platform. Hmm. So is Amazon 
part of the security problem. Yes, they are in a way because they give you the, I would say, the rope to hang yourself. You don't have to use the rope, but you can if you want to. If you want to use the rope for something else, for example, tying down a pole in your yard in your in your yard where it won't fly away, but that will be something which is useful. But if you want to take the features and capabilities which Amazon provide you and use them in the incorrect way, then unfortunately, I think that is actually the person who is causing the problem or leaving an S3 bucket open to the world that is their fault and nobody else's but Amazon. Now, of course, Amazon is trying to, as because they keep on saying, and they're very, very, what they say, they are crazy or fanatic about their customers. So they keep on getting feedback from the customers that we say, okay, you give us this rope to hang ourselves, so we would still like you to put a bright red light on the, or a bright red sign on the rope to say you can actually hang yourself with this rope, or you can cause a huge amount of damage by opening up an S3 bucket to the public world. And Amazon are incorporating more and more of these, I would say, flashy big red alarms to say what you shouldn't be doing. You can still do it if you want to. And if you do it, that is your own problem and your own fault if something happens. But they are giving more, I would say, visibility to some of the less secure or more dangerous parts of what you can actually do in the cloud. Well, let's highlight some of our own dangerous or insecure things that companies get wrong. They move up to cloud and then as they first stand up those workloads, there is something about cloud security that they tend to do wrong. Have you made any observations that way? So one of the, of course, the easiest and fastest things that you can actually do for when you bring things up in the cloud and you want to start testing things is saying, I want to open access to something with a public IP address to anywhere in the world because I don't want to start locking down specific access from one site or the other site because I want to get something done. And what usually happens eventually is you find out that after 10 days, somebody has somehow got some kind of keylogger or malware installed on the instance because you left it open to the world. So there are certain security measures, which I would say even from day one, always make sure that the access to the instances that you are putting up in the cloud are secure and locked down to where they should be. The same way that you wouldn't open up a hole in your firewall to manage your web server from anywhere in the world in your own data center. You shouldn't be doing the same thing also in the cloud as well. But I think that draws a question around private infrastructure and the comparison to cloud infrastructure. So example, when you're on-prem, you own it, it's all yours. You know, the, the root user, the admin privileges, they might be given out too freely, but you kind of know like, hey, I shouldn't be logging as admin. I shouldn't make everyone domain admin, you know, but whatever. You know, like it's just a choice you make because it's kind of in the soft, inside, chewy center of my jawbreaker that is the data center. Is it also possible to, to commit those sins in the public cloud, such as, you know what, I gave out too many privileges, it's in the cloud infrastructure, but hey, in this case, I don't even know that I'm doing it, versus on-prem where you're, you kind of know that you're being bad. If we're talking about on-prem infrastructure, usually we're talking about access to a single instance or a group of instances with a set of credentials. When we're going to a cloud like Amazon, when you give credentials to the Amazon infrastructure, you are giving the credentials across all of Amazon infrastructure to all of the resources and all the services that they provide. Uh, so because there's no, I would it, think it's not just what you have installed and deployed on the data center floor. Like today, it's potentially any amount of stuff that could be created and consumed as a tenant within AWS. Exactly. For example, if you give somebody administrative privileges, he can also fire up any database or launch any Lambda function or run any machine learning 
system that he would like inside the cloud because they have the privileges which were given with over over provisioned. The one other thing I would like to say is it's also very, very difficult from from the Amazon perspective, at least from at least me as a user, to understand which exact permissions I should be allocating to a single user. For example, does the user need read on that resource and write on another resources, but not read on resource Y? For example, I need to read a, a permission and not read a instance information. These are things which it's actually quite difficult to understand from the Amazon tools itself. There are third-party tools such as there is a tool from Netflix that does allow you to try and understand security mapping of actually least privilege that you should be allocating to your users and your entities inside Amazon. If these things would be easier to understand within Amazon itself and out of the box, I assure you a lot more people would be using it. As a result that it is not, Unfortunately, people over-provision access to resources in the cloud and therefore open themselves up to security problems and security vulnerabilities and um, attacks. Yeah, the, uh, we interviewed Scott Piper, who's written some open source tools to help with this, and I believe his cloud tracker application helps with that by reviewing what the least privileges someone should have based on reviewing logs and then making an inference. Well, they have all these privileges, but they've only used these half a dozen or so, so you can probably lock them down to these half a dozen privileges. So it's kind of a you know a logical way to go about inferring what those privileges need to be as opposed to looking at the long list and going, I don't know what all of these super granular privileges give or don't <laughs> give or what exactly they need to have. And I think that was the conformity monkey that we were thinking of, right? It, it checks the application kind of topology. And, and yeah, it was, it was good stuff because it's almost like you need a shim layer between you and the infinite possibilities of the cloud to more narrowly define what you're deploying into. I definitely can see that as an advantage. Yeah, very much so. And I remember your show from with Scott Piper. I was listening to it last week on the way to work. Manish, is there, is there an idea of a security template or maybe a default security posture that you can take in the cloud that helps you be reasonably secure? Hey, if you choose this template, then this is where you're at, rather than you having to figure it all out yourself. Kind of like an easy button or a, or a box you can check in Amazon uh, while you're standing up infrastructure. So Amazon does provide what they call service roles or managed service roles. In other words, they have come up with an idea of what a... DevOps person should be using, or if we say a support person or a billing administrator or a database administrator should be doing in the cloud and what permissions should be assigned to that kind of a user. So there are some kind of boilerplate templates or frameworks that you can use to assign those permissions to your users or your resources inside the cloud. Of course, there will always be the extra specific use case where you need to have something which is different or slightly above. And then in that case, you either, unless you understand how vulnerable you're going to be making yourself, will over-provision the amount of rights and permissions that the user has, or have to start playing whack-a-mole against, is this permission allowed or do I need to add it in or punch another hole into the permissions in order for me to access and get everything done, which I would like. Maish, do you feel it's harder to get the security aspects of deployment and configuration and just operating the cloud correct if you provision via the API versus provisioning with the GUI? I certainly know that like GUI is kind of like a, a dirty word in the cloud world. <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. But 
anything you can do through the UI, you can also do through the API. Unfortunately, in some certain ways, things that you can do through the API, you can't always do through the UI, but they're almost 100% parallel. I don't think that anybody which manages infrastructure at scale within Amazon uses UI because to manage, for example, powering down 3,000 instances or spinning up four different databases within 10 minutes is not going to be able to do physically, humanly possible to do that as, as a user through the UI. That's why everybody's going to be using some kind of provisioning tool, be it Ansible, Terraform, CloudFormation, whatever it may be, against the APIs again in AWS and using that mechanism in order to do the work for them. I don't think there is, it's fair to say that you can get security right by using the UI and not using the API. Mm. It just, I think it's the level of knowledge that you have and level of experience because they can both be exactly the same. You get the same parity between the two of them. Yeah, and I, I know that when I was, I, I'm more in the Azure world these days, but I know I usually start in the GUI because I don't know what I, I don't know pretty much anything when you start with any technology, you're just, you're just zero. And so I read a lot and I like to tinker around and I throw away stuff and I, and I kind of see the terminology and how they're working their particular environment through the GUI. And then as so quick as possible, I try to automate it and, and use the API. So that certainly resonates with me. And I, but I guess what I was thinking of is when you look at IAM specifically or, or IAM or however you, however you want to pronounce that, uh, the JSON payload necessary to configure that was just like daunting at first. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before I go into this, I really need to see how it's constructed in the GUI first. Uh, but I didn't have the inclination that one is more secure than the other. But I certainly feel like as you might cop out when you're calling the API and just say, okay, start out star, you know, the equivalent of wildcarding and saying, whatever, I don't care who's in this because I'm just playing with it. And then it inevitably becomes going in production. I completely agree. And that is why, for example, whenever I'm learning something new in AWS, I always will use the, the UI first in order to understand how things work. But once I've got the idea or the logic or the, rationale behind how things are actually deployed and what I can do with it, I would almost 99% of the time move over to automate it in a CLI or in some kind of framework which accesses the AWS APIs because it allows me to, as you said before, repeat it, repeat wash and rinse. Cloud security auditing tools, uh, Mayesh, is there anything that you recommend? It's a hard question because Amazon itself doesn't really they provide you a huge amount of raw data that can allow you to analyze whatever you really want with inside AWS. There's a, a product called CloudTrail, which is there by default. All you have to do is check the box in order to enable it. will document, I think, almost every single API call you make to the AWS APIs and log it, and you can understand exactly what happened, who made it, when they did it, what they did. There are another thing, something called VPC flow logs, which allows you to manage and understand every single bit and byte going in and out of your instances and VPCs within AWS and give you a flow of what happened from year to there. The problem is how do you aggregate all those things into one coherent and easy use and, and a usable tool? Amazon, from what I have seen, does not really provide a easy mechanism in order for you to understand exactly where everything is going, give you the data, but they don't give you a overall picture of, do I understand, am I secure, not secure? Where can I find a vulnerability? Where is something kind of anomaly happening? It's not something which Amazon provides. 
There are third-party tools. There's a security monkey, for example, from Netflix, which is an, gives you some kind of overall security. Scott Piper has a certain uh, set of open source tools. There are a number of other open source tools out on the market today. And of course, there's third-party tools, which you can also pay for. But there are enough tools to do that. A specific one, which I can give you at the moment, I don't have a name, but there's more than enough things you can look out either on GitHub or on Slack channels where everybody's hanging out from um, from AWS, either the, the OG AWS Slack channel or a number of other ones which are up and about today. There's enough things to find out there that you can use for sure. I love that idea of should I use the GUI or should I use an API to configure things in the cloud? And, and the answer is I can't click fast enough to get all of this done. Exactly. You cannot click fast enough. And, and cloud is really intended for programmatic management of the infrastructure, which sounds a lot like what Justin Garrison was telling us in our Managing Cloud Native Applications episode we did recently, Chris. So uh, what, what struck you? I was thinking about cloud security and the classical difference between you know Unix and Linux and Windows. Because, uh, you know, in Linux environments, typically you say delete or RM or remove, and it just says cool and deletes everything, even itself. You can just completely wipe away the the base file system. You're assumed to be the expert. Whereas Windows, it often got a bad rap because it constantly popped up and say, are you sure you want to delete this thing, buddy? You know, is that really what you wanted to do? And so in the end, you're still the one sitting in the driver's seat. But there are certainly opportunities to simplify security for the masses. So I kind of get the whole argument between is it my fault? Is it your fault? kind of both. But really, it's you. We have talked about some of the cost issues and optimizing for cost, what people get wrong. We've talked about security and what people uh, get wrong when they move to public cloud in their security paradigm. Now let's talk about operations. So, Mish, I want to get down to people that are in a traditional shop. There are roles that developers play. There are roles that the operations teams play. And in traditional infrastructure, everyone kind of understands those roles do those roles begin to change as the infrastructure changes from on-premises equipment that we can see in our data center and our racks and we manage that stuff? And does that change when we move to cloud? Does Do developers start managing their own infrastructure? Do operations take on maybe a different role from what they did before? Do things really change there? So the answer to your question is yes, yes, and yes, and yes. <laughs> okay. Wow. Hold on. <laughs> The roles change completely because since everything is an API and the developer has the same or usually very similar API access to what everybody else or an operations person has, of course, you can limit the roles and what exactly the actions they can perform. But yes, a developer will bring up a network, a developer will bring up an instance. And if up until now on-premises you had your operations team, we were the ones that actually racked and stacked the server and plugged in the network cable and the network guys were the ones that configured the trunk on the port in order to get to the right VLAN. These kind of things are done with a simple API call and can be done from the developer to the billing manager to the CIO till the operations person or the OPSEC person, which is looking at the infrastructure. Everybody can do the same thing. So the roles blur in a way that some people have quite a bit of difficulty to understand where do I fit in with this new cloud world? Am I allowed to do the operations for myself or am I still have to leave that operations part to the people which were 
traditionally responsible for that in, in, in my organization. From my experience, by still preserving those silos of network, security, operations, developments, and whatever may be among the other kind of people within inside your organization is the complete opposite of what we want to achieve when we go to the cloud. We are trying to allow people to work faster, move their business forward in a way which they weren't able to do on-prem because of all these different silos and the speed of which things were actually happening on-prem, only by actually allowing everybody to do what they can and should be doing will hinder the actual benefit that you receive from using the cloud. Now, of course, there are guardrails that have to be put in place. You cannot allow everybody to provision 50,000 instances within their account, and there are a certain number of ways of how to limit or, I would say, frame what people are allowed to do and where their, their sets of responsibility are. Usually, it will be, if it would be up to me, it would be allow people to do what they think they should be doing. But I, as an operations person, have certain guardrails in place that make sure that even if somebody did make a mistake, I have a measure applied that will close that mistake and protect my organization after somebody moved an instance open to the world in the cloud because they weren't 100% sure what they should be doing. The guardrails should be there and allow people to move as fast as they can, but still stay compliant with certain standards and certain rules in place. Hmm. It's like, here's your pool. You can swim anywhere you want in it, but uh, don't get out. <laughs> Just stay in the pool. And I think that leads yeah. to questions around the term refactoring applications gets thrown about a lot without a whole lot of metadata around what that means. So I'm looking to go a bit deeper on what that means you know, in reality, you know, if you're looking to refactor an application, first off, is that only the developers are doing that? Are ops involved? Is is it both? Like most folks, I think, listen to this tend to be on the ops side of the house. And we're probably curious, how do we get involved with that? Or should we be involved with this whole refactoring effort? So I think the people that will actually refactor the code and the applications themselves will definitely be the developers because they own and they understand what the applications are doing, what they should be doing and how they perform and what the functionality that they actually want to receive and achieve from whatever they're deploying to the cloud. The thing is that the operations people understand more, and this is a slight pet peeve of mine and a number of talks that I've given of why I think the best DevOps people are actually operations people and not developers, is because they have a better overall view of what a production system should look like and where certain pieces of the code themselves are not performing correctly and how we can, in concept and at a high level, improve them. They don't necessarily know how to refactor codes that instead of an API taking 10 milliseconds, it can take 0.1 milliseconds. That's something that a developer will know how to optimize their code, but they will be able to point out to the organization and the company that something is not right, something is taking too long. And therefore, we have to look into the actual code to find out why that is happening. Is it something from the way we are using the infrastructure, the code that we wrote? And if there is ways inside the cloud that we can use to optimize that query in some way or cache the query so it makes things a lot quicker inside, there is 
the operations people have, I think, the, I would say, the street knowledge of <laughs> yeah. running down in the middle of the neighborhood. And the people that are the developers know exactly which way I should go in the neighborhood in order to get there or which streets I should, I should actually think of looking at in order to get to where I want to go. But I just, I just had an immediate vision of like uh, Grand Theft Auto, the game, you know, like together yeah. we're in the car, like you're telling me where to go and I'm watching out for people trying to shoot me and, you know, do whatever. It, it's, it's definitely the ultimate in, in silo busting for sure. Very much so. I agree. So if we're talking about silo busting, then that becomes kind of the norm when you move to a cloud environment. Does that mean IT teams should be reorganizing to better align with what it's like to operate cloud infrastructure? I think that IT teams need to understand that expertise are something which is very, very needed in the cloud. We need expertise. We need network, network experts. We need compute experts. We need database experts. We need people that understand how the bits and bytes actually work, but we also need these people to be some kind of a generalist. So I need to know everything there is to need to know about databases, but I also need to know enough about what networking is and what compute is and what storage is in the cloud as well, even though they're not my area of expertise. I don't know if they need to reorganize and become, everybody needs to become an expert in everything, but everybody needs to become a certain level of a generalist in everything and keep their expertise in their certain fields, which they're used to, because they will come in handy very much so, even in the cloud, not only on-premises. Right. If you become a generalist, if you're used to being a deep specialist and you didn't really want to have to speak the language of other silos, I think that's what we're getting at here. When you're in a cloud environment, you need to be knowledgeable about really how the whole system works because you're going to be in conversations with other folks putting the whole system together. And if you just go, I'm the network guy and I just know VLANs and IP addresses. It's all I know. That's You're not adding enough to the equation and can't really help when things are going bad. You can't design what the network infrastructure might look like most appropriately for the environment if you choose to remain ignorant of what everything else uh, is in that environment. I completely agree. Being a generalist is a good thing, but you can't be ignorant about what everybody else is doing, because in that case, you're going to be the silo which is left behind. Except for networking, because, oh, wait, no, no, I guess networking is important, too. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but you're gonna, you can't only be a networking person. That's yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just love taking little crack shots uh, over at uh, Mr. Banks here for his, I, I don't know, I, I had to deal with some switching stuff lately, and I'm like, oh, man, I wish Ethan was here. So just letting you and all of our listeners know that there are moments in my life where I just really wish you were at my house helping me troubleshoot stuff. Well, that's sweet, buddy. There you go. <laughs> and then uh, going back to the topic at hand, uh, let's talk about training especially when it comes to selling the idea of training and getting budget and whatnot from management, you know, should, should IT management, I mean, first of all, should they help with skilling up their team and, and go and prioritize training? Is that, is that worthy? And if you think it is, what kind of training do you think would be beneficial for engineers looking to skill up as we're looking to migrate or, or refactor data and applications into the cloud? So I think, Getting to know a new platform is something which is crucial in order for you to understand how it works. So definitely, yes, you need to be trained on the platform you're using. There are a number of different ways. My personal preference is I do not like doing frontal courses or lecturer stands in front of me. I sit there for four days and learn about a certain level of certification from AWS or Microsoft or VMware, whatever it may be. I've always been a hands-on learner, and there are more than enough 
courses out there and the number of things which I've used through my certification process of five AWS certifications over the past year or six months ago, a year ago. For example, Linux Academy or A Cloud Guru, there, they, there are online courses which are not expensive at all. Usually it's something like $200 for a la carte and you can do it more or less whatever you want for a year. So it's not really that big of a hole in your pocket. These are the kind of courses which not only give you the experience of having somebody explain to you and go through piece by piece by piece what they are, but they all have hands-on experience and hands-on exercises which you need to go through in order to understand. So that Got is it. the education part. The most important part of learning how to use a new system, of course, is playing with the nuts and bolts with your fingers. And without actually using the cloud, having access, using it day in and day out, then that will be the, that is the only way that you can understand what you should be doing inside AWS or any other cloud and how you can make use of all the features and functionality which is available to you to move your operation to a better place inside the cloud. Yeah, just a quick plug to, uh, I think back at the, the beginning of this year, you, you published a blog post that it was something cheeky, like five certs in 100 days or 200 days or something. But uh, it was really great because you went into the entire journey, the full roadmap, basically everything that you did you know, at a high to medium level on the journey, all the certs and whatnot. It was really cool that you gave back all that intel to whoever wants to come visit your site. So just definitely a plug for that. And we'll make sure it's in the show notes too. Thank you very much. And of course, it's on, I think as you and I, and of course, I'm sure Ethan as well, we know that keeping knowledge to ourselves is in some way beneficial to ourselves, but it's not beneficial to everybody else. And I personally learn a huge amount of knowledge from other people every day, all day. And I think as part of me, not only learning and teaching and giving back to people as well, which I've learned from, is also sharing what I've learned and helping other people out as well. Well, Manish, tell people where they can uh, follow you, follow your blog. I know you're beginning work on a book. Share all of that information with folks. So I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is SK. Actually, that's all social media is the same thing. I have a blog called technodrone.blogspots.com, and I have started a new project called The Cloud Walkabout, which is a book available on LeanPub, at least the first three chapters, which I have already published and I'm going to be continuing, hopefully, another three to six chapters by reInvent at the end of the year, of my journey and my experiences of moving monoliths and on-prem applications from data centers in the past into the AWS cloud, what the lessons I've learned and how we can improve the process along the way. And, and the way LeanPub works, if I go and buy the cloud walkabout today and get the first three chapters that you've got done, I'll get the rest as you publish them, right? That is correct. I, it's an ongoing agile process of publishing, which I discovered approximately six to eight months ago. And I find it the most wonderful thing in order to publish any kind of written material there is. Outstanding. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us on the Data Knots podcast today, Maish. And that is it for today's edition. You can reach Ethan, that's me, at EC Banks on Twitter, or check out my about page at ethancbanks.com. Chris is at Chris Wall on Twitter, and he thinks out loud at wallnetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, park your rocket in orbit around packetpushers.net. 
down on the planet's surface, you will find a myriad of fellow datanauts discussing orchestration, cloud-native, automation, DevOps, architecture, hyperconvergence, distributed apps, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your new cloud look different from your old data center, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank mm-hmm. you.